people. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask if you would turn to Titus chapter 2, Paul's little letter. And we're going to be looking at two verses, just a short passage this morning. Uh, a short passage that contains a lot of depth, a lot of riches to it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. One thing I've always struggled with, maybe you identify with this, but one thing that I've always struggled to figure out is how people change. Like, how is it that people really change? Uh, Not just modify their behavior, but deep down from the heart, a change of heart kind of change. The kind of change that we might call as Christians becoming more holy. How is it that Christians actually become more holy? And I think we Christians in general struggle with this because while we may not all wrestle with the relationship between law and gospel, and maybe some of you don't even really even think in those categories or those labels are somewhat confusing to you or the distinction is not clear to you, law and gospel. Um, But deep down in the flesh, I think that we think the way people change is by having the right instructions. If we just had the right instructions and emphasized them in the right way, on a repeated basis, that is what would lead to deep down heart change. And I think the reason we think that is because deep down, we like the idea of contributing religious sweat equity to becoming more like Christ. But what Paul does in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and what he does repeatedly in other portions of the New Testament, is sabotage that very idea. He sabotages the idea that holiness comes through commandments. Now, he's not saying commandments are bad, and certainly Paul hands out a fair number of commandments himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, things that God would have us do. So it's not against the law, it's not anti-law, but he's going to establish here that what has begun by the gospel, the salvation that has begun by the power of the finished work of Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit, is finished by the gospel. That what has been initiated by the Spirit is actually completed by the Spirit. So let's begin reading in verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray once more, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to settle it deeper into our hearts. Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning for only what you can do. Give us a vision of your Son in the spiritual senses. Open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear the word that you would have us hear of your Son, knowing that it is only beholding the vision of your Son that transforms us. Your servant Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's by beholding the glory that we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so we ask that In this text, over and above any words that I might throw at it, your spirit would be at work in this room and in our souls to give us this transforming vision of your grace in the finished work of your son, his life and death and resurrection. It's in your son's name that we pray because of his work that we have access to pray. Amen. Well, you see the aim right there. You see the result that we're talking about or what we're aiming for a self-controlled, upright, 
and godly life. That is the picture here. That's the description that Paul is using for what we might call holiness or becoming more holy. We want to be self-controlled. We want to be upright. We want to be godly people. And as I've said, I, th- I think most of us tend to think we know how this holiness comes about. We obey. Um, if someone is not in obedience, if they're in disobedience, what you do is you throw more commands of obedience at them. You see a situation, a circumstance where there is disobedience at work, and you back up the, the dump truck of the law and just pile a whole lot of to-dos on there. And commands are not not part of the equation. But notice that in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, and really lots of places, but in this text that we're looking at this morning, notice that obedience is not the cause in this text. It's the effect. We're, we're, we're looking to get to obedience. And Paul is trying to tell us where that obedience comes from. Obedience in this text is not the cause. It's the effect. So in... And in a moral world, as we look out at what people really need to become more Christ-like or to become obedient people, we have to reconcile Christians. We have to reconcile with the reality, the biblical reality, the spiritual reality, that the solution is not religion. Because essentially, people are already religious. Now, they may be atheists, they may not believe in any sort of spiritual world, but they understand the sort of religious economy, that moralistic dynamic that exists in every human heart. For instance, every person has their idea of a heaven. It may not be heaven, it may not even be anything spiritual, but it's some fulfillment, some satisfaction, some happiness, some goal, some dream, some vision of success, and that heaven to be achieved has certain steps. If you ask the average person on the street, whether they're religious or irreligious, superficially religious or irreligious, how do you get fulfilled? How do you get happy? How do you get success? Invariably, they'll give you some variation of the golden rule or, or some law of attraction or, you know, if you just put good vibes out there, if you just be a positive person, if you just do more good things than you do bad things, if you just be kind to other people, if you just do unto others. Most people understand the religion thing quite well. The reason they're not, quote unquote, acting right is not because they lack for information, And the reality is, the church, I think, must really wrestle with this. The reality is that we can actually have a world of good behavior and not treasure Christ. In his book, Christless Christianity, Michael Horton addresses this very issue, and he brings to mind a historical address by Donald Barnhouse. This is what Horton writes. What would things look like if Satan actually took over a city? The first frames in our imaginative slideshow probably depict mayhem on a massive scale. Widespread violence, deviant sexualities, pornography in every vending machine, churches closed down, and worshipers dragged off to City Hall. Over a half century ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor of Philadelphia's 10th Presbyterian Church, gave his CBS radio audience a different picture of what it would look like if Satan took control of a town in America. He said that all of the bars and pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. 
the kids would answer, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full on Sunday where Christ is not preached. Do you see that for the devil, having everyone be nice and sweet and good and tidy and moral and not treasure Christ would be a win? And so now do you see how even if we had the best laws to modify everyone's behavior and punished all of the right crimes and had all of the right politicians, it wouldn't change a single heart? We can live a quote-unquote moral life all the way to hell. And the devil would be just fine with that, so long as Christ is not treasured. So religiosity is not the same thing as godliness. People acting right to make us more comfortable, to create a tidier society is not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about actual godliness, the self-control, the uprightness, the godliness that comes through a treasuring of Jesus Christ in the heart, real change, heart change. And so if obedience that honors Christ is the effect that we're going for, what's the cause? If it's not obedience that causes the obedience, or it's not laws that cause the obedience, what is the cause? Well, he says in verse 11, the grace of God. Well, so far so good. We think we know what grace is. We talk about grace a lot. What Paul is saying is that grace has appeared. This is the Greek word epiphania. It's a revelation. It's an epiphany. It's like the lights turned on. One of the best illustrations that I can think of, of in relation to this is the prodigal son in the pigsty. If you remember what happened, it says he came to himself. Or he came to his senses, some translations say. It was finally, uh, after eating the pig slop or, or, or being in that circumstance, having lost everything, it was like suddenly someone flipped on a light switch and he could see himself for who he really was and what he had really done. And so the bankruptcy of his own soul, the spiritual poverty that was there, was finally illuminated and he thought, this isn't right. This isn't good. And if you remember the parable well, you remember that his in first instinct is sort of what our first instinct is. It wasn't to go to grace. He couldn't fathom the idea that his dad would welcome him back. But what he thought was this. Gosh, my dad's employees have it better than this. I'll go work for my dad. And there's the religious angle, the moralistic angle where our flesh first goes to. We can't even conjure up the idea that the favor of God would be given to such sinful behavior. But so now the light has switched on. Grace has appeared, and it is sufficient for all people. It is power for all who are saved. There are not some who are saved by law and some who are saved by grace. I think if we could just get how versatile, how abundant grace really is, this would begin to make more sense, this whole idea about grace training us. The way that the New Testament speaks of grace is quite robust. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. So we know that grace is enough. It's enough. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So now we know grace is enough, and we know grace is power. 
2 Timothy 2.1, Paul writes to his young protege, Timothy, and says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So now we know grace is enough, and grace is power, and grace is strength. In 2 Corinthians 4.15, he says, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So now we know grace is enough, and grace is power, and grace is strength, and grace produces thankfulness, worship. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So now we know grace is enough, and grace is power, and grace is strength, and grace produces thanksgiving, and grace changes the way that we talk. 2 Corinthians 1, 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. So grace is enough, and grace is power, and grace is strength, and grace produces thankfulness, and grace changes the way we talk, and grace enables us to live well. And in John 1.16, we are told that from his fullness, the fullness of Christ, we receive, quote, grace upon grace. So now we know that grace in Christ is ever flowing. It is always filling to brimming. It is always coming from the person of Christ. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the gospel of grace is the contingency for all that follows. And you see this pattern in all of Paul's letters. Paul hands out lots of practical stuff, lots of things to do, but he always begins his letters with some proclamation of the gospel of grace, what Christ has done. You look at the first Several chapters of Romans, you look in Ephesians chapter 2, you look in Colossians chapter 1. He is always doing the done before he does the do. And so here is just a little microcosm of that, a a zoomed-in picture of, of that. We think we know how to get people to act right. We tell them to act right. Charles Spurgeon says, rest assured, if motives fetched from the gospel will not kill sin, motives fetched from the law never will. Instead, it's the revelation of the saving grace of God that, verse 12, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What trains us? The grace of God. Does that make any sense to you? I struggle with this. How does grace train us? Because grace, maybe you've heard the definition, it's unmerited favor. Grace, by definition, is not work, or at least not our work, right? The reason we are saved by grace is we're saved by grace apart from works. It's purely from God. It's a gift given to us freely, sovereignly. So grace announces the saving work is done. If you're thinking of grace, don't think get to work. Think it is finished. So grace announces the saving work is credited to us through our faith and not our work. So it's getting even deeper and we're still not even working yet. So how does, here's the question, looking at Titus 2, 11 and 12, how does not working train us to work? Is this, does it make any logical sense? Doesn't this fly against any sort of rationality, any religious rationality that we would bring to this idea? How does not working train us to work? Well, I think in a million ways, in a million ways we probably don't even see. 
But I want to share with you, I think, five, five ways the Bible teaches us that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And notice, these are not five things to do. These are not five steps. These are five things that grace does. So here's the first. Grace trains us by changing our tastes. Grace trains us by changing our tastes. The more that you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, the more that all of the morsels offered by this puny, gloryless world seem so pathetic. When you have tasted of the heavenly gift, when you have tasted of the grace of God, like the prodigal son, you begin to see, I'm in a pigsty. All of these things that I have been trusting to satisfy me, to fulfill me, to be sufficient for me, to bring me joy, to bring me happiness, to bring me success, all of the, it's, it's, it's slop. How did I not see this before? In John chapter 6, we have a great picture of this. Is Jesus has fed the 5,000, and of course, whenever you offer free food, people will show up. If you volunteer in student ministry, you know this quite well. Bring in the pizza. So Jesus is feeding the 5,000, which is proof it's not wrong to feed people. But as they're eating, as they're getting their bellies full, he then begins to preach. And he says something very provocative. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to live. And what happens? They all go away. The, The offense has driven them out. But his disciples are still there. And so Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to leave too? And Peter, stubborn, impulsive, impetuous Peter, who gets so many things wrong so often, it's easy to pick on the disciples, but really them is us. I mean, if you're reading it right. Peter says something that is so profound. He says, to whom should we go? Only you have the words of life. So see, in the chronology of the Gospels, Peter and the disciples still, they're not quite getting it. And and if you're looking at all the Gospels as a whole in the storyline, even up to the moment of Jesus' betrayal and arrest and even crucifixion, they're freaking out and not understanding, even though he's told them clearly this is what's going to happen. But in this moment, at least, Peter is saying, I have tasted and seen that you are good, Jesus. Why would I eat anything else? Why would I go anywhere else? Having you means that all the other options are no option at all. It was a no-brainer for him. Experiencing the gospel, having it settled in your heart, understanding what you've been set free from, what Christ has given to you, the promises that are made, the faithfulness of God, all brought to bear in the good news of Jesus Christ, makes all the other options no option at all. If you have taste and seen how satisfying Jesus is, you lose your taste for other things. This is not simply trading one addiction for another. This is finding eternal satisfaction in Christ, having your taste buds change. So that the cross that was offensive before is now all of your joy and glory and hope. And so grace trains us. Grace teaches us 
to say no to sin, not primarily by teaching us to say no to sin, but by teaching us to say yes to Jesus. Changes our tastes. The second way that grace trains us is this. Grace trains us by both humbling us and emboldening us. Humbling us and emboldening us. These things don't seem like they go together. Jonathan Edwards says that in Christ there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. It's a big, you know, post-Puritan phrase. Uh, You know, Jonathan Edwards was kind of an egghead. But what it means is this. All of these things that you wouldn't think go together, they're sort of juxtaposed, find their intersection in Christ. So, for instance, Jesus is the shepherd who was also the Lamb of God. Jesus was the king who came as a servant. Jesus is the judge who puts himself in the place of the condemned man. So you see, it's sort of these intersection of things. So it makes sense that in the gospel, we might see an intersection of things, these virtues that don't seem to go together, and yet are produced by grace. And I think two of these things are this, a profound humility, a meekness, a a, a lowness, a good biblical lowness, and also a great, big, powerful confidence. I mean, when you have one without the other, it can be somewhat disastrous. They don't seem like they go together, but they do, and, and, and they find their right proportion and intersection in the grace of God and the gospel. Let me give you an example from church history. Doug Nichols, um, a fellow who was a part of Operation Mobilization, a missions organization, writes this. In 1966, I joined Operation Mobilization for a year of ministry in France, but spent two years in India instead. While in London that summer, at the one-month OM orientation, I volunteered to work on a cleanup crew late one night. Around 12.30 a.m., I was sweeping the front steps of the conference center when an older gentleman approached and asked if this was the OM conference. I told him it was, but most everyone was in bed. He had a small bag with him and was dressed very simply. He said he was attending the conference, so I said, let me see if I can find you a place to sleep. Since there were many different age groups at OM, I thought he was an older OMer. I took him to the room where I had been sleeping on the floor with about 50 others, and seeing that he had nothing to sleep on, laid some padding and a blanket on the floor, and used a towel for a pillow. He said it would be fine, and he appreciated it very much. As he was preparing for bed, I asked him if he had eaten. He had not, as he had been traveling all day. I took him to the dining room, but it was locked. So after picking the lock, I found cornflakes, milk, bread, butter, and jam, (laughs) all of which he appreciated very much. As he ate, we began to fellowship. I asked where he was from. He said he and his wife had been working in Switzerland for several years in the ministry, mainly to hippies and travelers. It was wonderful to talk with him and hear about his work and those who had come to Christ. When he finished eating, we turned in for the night. However, the next day, I was in trouble. The leaders of OM really got on my case. Don't you know who that man is on the floor next to you, they asked. It is Dr. Francis Schaefer, the speaker for the conference. (laughs) I did not know they were going to have a speaker. Nor did I know who Francis Schaefer was. Nor did I know they had a special room prepared for him. After Francis Schaefer became well-known because of his books, and I had read more about him, I thought about this occasion many times. This gracious, kind, humble man of God sleeping on the floor with OM recruits. This was the kind of man I wanted to be. 
Now, you may not know who Francis Schaeffer is. And those of you who do, the story probably seems more impressive to you. But even if you don't, do you, do you understand, do you resonate with the idea that th- he could have pulled rank at any second? Don't, isn't there a room for me? Don't you know who I am? Let me tell you. Perhaps he was tempted to do so. Now, how does this example show us both humility? That's really easy to see. We see Francis Schaeffer's humility here. But how does it show his boldness, his confidence? Because we would think, separated from humility, if he was bold and confident, he would just say, there's probably a room for me. That's a bold thing to say. That's a confident thing to say. And wouldn't perhaps even be a wrong thing to say. The humility is very easy to see, but do you see, if you look beneath it, that humility comes from extreme confidence in who you are in Christ? Humility comes from a total security that comes from one's position in Christ. See, we can renounce ungodliness, we can be self-controlled people, not having to defend ourselves, not having to justify ourselves, not having to get pushy about our own way or pull rank or make our own voice heard, if we really believe we have everything in Jesus. The more hidden with Christ in God I believe myself to be, the less I have to hide. And the more secure in my union with Christ I am, the more secure I am against the sins that appeal to the insecurity of my flesh. Someone confronts me, brings a criticism, whether it's true or not, the little defense lawyer immediately pops up on my shoulder. Here's all the things you need to say about that. You are a good person. You tell them that. But rather than try to defend myself, justify myself, if I know that my justification before God is secure in Christ, I don't need to justify myself. If you are justified by God in Christ, you have nothing left to prove. They can get glad in the same pants they got mad in. Somewhat ironically, what happens to a gospel-centered Christian who has that gospel humility is that he is now joyously free. He can lead confidently because he knows things aren't up to him, but up to God. He knows Jesus will build his church in spite of his own mistakes and missteps. He is thoughtful and conscientious, but he makes decisions confidently because he knows the weight of the world doesn't hinge on himself, but on God. God is sovereign. So the gospel-centered Christian frets much less about petty criticism and legalistic slander. Whenever I am tempted to to get discouraged by nitpicky grapevine chatter about myself or those I love, I preach the gospel to myself. And if the chatter is truly nitpicky, and, and not about actual sins I've committed. Now, this isn't about rejecting good rebukes from brothers and sisters. But accusations, lies, nitpicky, legalism. If it's not about actual sins I've committed, I throw it on a gospel fire and let it burn. Jesus is king, so everything is good. I won't waste any time on wastes of time. Why? Because it is for freedom that I have been set free, and I will no longer return to a yoke of slavery. And so if you are totally secure in Christ, it wouldn't bother you at all to sleep on the floor if somebody asked you to. It wouldn't bother you at all to wash the dishes after dinner, even if nobody asked you to. 
there is a security in Christ that produces such confidence that it produces such humility. We can be meek and lowly because if God is for us, who can be against us? I, I can suffer. I can suffer. I have Jesus. This is the third way that grace trains us. It trains us by its convicting and inspiring example. Grace trains us by its convicting and inspiring example. Now, this is similar to the way the law convicts us by showing how we don't measure up. One of the things the law does, besides telling us what to do, is show us we can't do it. You ever figured that out? So you look up against the law and you say, oh, there's lots of stuff to do. I mean, I guess I'll get to work, but... I mean, this, this is so comprehensive and so exhaustive. It's, it's basically calling for perfection, and it is. Uh, there's no way that I could measure up to this. And so now I see I, I'm convicted by the way that I don't measure up to it. But the way that grace convicts us, although it's similar, the way that grace convicts us by showing our sin is more empowering. And this is how it works for me anyway. Let me just give you an example, and maybe this will resonate with you. My wife and I may be dealing with a discipline issue with one of our daughters. We have two daughters. My approach, and I'm very proud of this, that I don't yell. I usually don't even get angry. But my approach is to give a good talking. I can, man, I can give a good talking. I am fantastic at telling my girls what's up. Sit down, I'm going to tell you what's up. Lots of words. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to talk. I give them a talking to. My wife, on the other hand, will explain to them what they did wrong, and, and she'll explain why it was wrong, and she'll explain what the consequences will be for them doing something that's wrong. But she always ends by saying, I love you. And what you did doesn't change that. And I'll hear that, and I'll think, why didn't I think to do that? Why didn't I say that? Or in the rare occasion that my wife loses her temper with one of the girls. Or we have, you know, we have two daughters that are close in age. It's sometimes easy to make the mistake of, you know, one did something wrong. They forgot to do something or left something there, you know, where they shouldn't have left it. And we end up accusing the other daughter of, of having done it. And so we, we've gotten them switched. We've made a false accusation or a false assumption. When something like that happens, my wife will say, I'm sorry, please forgive me apologizing to your kids? Who ever heard of this? But I hear her do this. I mean, you give someone a whole lot of power when you ask for their forgiveness. And so to ask a child for forgiveness sort of upends the, the power dynamic, does it not? But I see my wife doing this and saying this and she is, becomes in those moments a picture of grace to my daughters. And it makes me think, I want to be a better dad. I want to remember to say things like that. I want to remember to talk to them like that. I want to remind them that I love them and there's nothing that they're going to do that will make me not love them and not want to be their dad. And that this is just a blip on the radar of our relationship. Now, do you see, my wife accomplishes this not by nagging me, or even correcting me, or even pointing out the flaws in my parenting techniques, families, households, do you, have you figured out yet that nagging doesn't work? Does not work. It's not a lack of information that it's the thing's not getting done. They know. They know you want them to do the thing. 
She does this by the example of grace. And, and seeing that example convicts me and inspires me in a, a way completely different than the law might have. She brought the law to bear. Jared, you really did not speak to the girls in a very nice way. Jared, you should be a better dad. See, that would be withering. But the example of grace makes me want to measure up in a very empowered way. I'll give you one other short example. Most of my illustrations and sermons, probably 90% of them take place in the grocery store um, because 90% of my sanctification takes place in the grocery store. Men, you feel me on that? This happens so many times. You're in the checkout line. I am convinced it's the same lady just wearing different clothes and perhaps a wig. She's there every time I'm there, following me around, sent as a messenger by the sovereign grace of God to be a thorn in my flesh. I can see the sign. Everyone whose neck works can see the sign. It clearly says 12 items or less, preferably less. Like if you're pushing the 12 limit, maybe go to a shorter line. And so she's right there. Sign says 12. She clearly has 4,868 because I'm counting each one. The items are now going down the line. Now it's time to pay, and it's like she's forgotten. Oh, I have to pay for these items. Oh, I didn't understand. So she's rifling around in this gunny sack for a checkbook. <laughs> you should have it out. You should write in there the name of the store and just be ready for the amount. So, I, I mean, if you looked at me, you wouldn't see any of this taking place, but it's all in here. I'm just... Oh, this storm is brewing. And I don't know why. It's not like I have a, you know, I'm transporting an organ for transplant or something like that. I, I'm not, I have a very flexible schedule. I'm not, you know, it's just busyness. It's just, I, I, I want to get this done and get out. And so what will happen? Invariably, the clerk or someone else will show a great kindness. Like the clerk knows. And what's really even more puzzling and somewhat convicting to me is that probably the clerk has been through this routine a hundred times already on, on her shift. But she'll speak with such sweetness to the lady. Oh, do you need help out? And, oh, it, oh, it's fine. You're fine. In New England, everyone's fine. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Oh, you're fine. We're, we're always declaring this great pardon of justification to everyone, no matter what they're doing. We don't really mean it, but we're saying it. You're fine. And so that'll happen, and it immediately convicts me, and I, and, and, and I think, I'm not being very kind in my heart towards this woman. I need to be more kind. It convicts me in an inspiring way, not in a withering way. It makes me want to say, I, I want to be more kind to people. I want to have a better disposition towards people. I need to be nice, nice to people. I need to be patient with people. Niceness, oh, Right, I need to do that. The inspiring example of grace is so much more empowering than the law. Grace trains us. The law drains us. Here's the fourth way that grace trains us. Grace trains us by preparing us for suffering and affliction. Grace trains us by preparing us for suffering and affliction. When things fall apart, when the wheels fall off of your life, when the, the building collapses and you're inside, right? 
God shut a door and he did not open a window like you've been promised. And everything is falling apart. There is chaos. There is despair. There is hurt. There is great pain. Whatever is going on, most of the time we are set to law mode in our hearts. And here's how you know if you're set to law mode in suffering and affliction. You have a great self-pity Perhaps metaphorically, not literally, you shake your fist at God and you begin to bargain. What happens when things go wrong? Don't we immediately start going through the laundry list of things that we've done good to explain why we don't deserve this? God, why are you letting this happen? I've had my quiet time every day. I'm doing so much better than I did before. I've repented of these sins. I'm going to church every week. I'm involved in small group. I'm giving money towards the church. And now you're going to do me like this? Law mode. Like he owes us something. We are so concerned with what we deserve. When really, what we deserve is much worse. But when we are focused on grace in the middle of affliction, it trains us to trust, it trains us to hope, it trains us to find our satisfaction only in God. My friend Richard Scott Um, died of a brain tumor after about a two-year-long battle with brain cancer. Uh, September, the last Sunday in September, so a little over a month ago, early morning on a Sunday morning, Richard and his family, he he leaves behind a young wife, two small children, Miley just turned six, Judah is, I think, three. Richard taught me and taught our church a lot about how to focus on God in the midst of great suffering and affliction. And what's really um, important for us is, as, as Richard was on his way out, we didn't know how long he had at this time, but in, in the two or three weeks before he died, as he began to decline, we had another woman in our church diagnosed with a brain tumor, discovered a brain tumor behind her left eye. And they may not sound um, like a lot to you in a large church, but we're of a church of about 100 people. So this is quite significant for us. Um, I mean, it touches everyone in our church. And so we are now trying to apply what Richard taught us as we journey through with our friend Anne, especially now that Anne, the beginning of her cancer journey is very troubling. It's a lot like the end of Richard, so that's somewhat distressing to us. Richard, in his last two or three weeks, had trouble speaking, and and, and many times he he couldn't speak. Um, There were times where he could hear what you were saying, and he could understand what you were saying, um, at least we think so, but, you know, so he would nod, but he couldn't access the part of his brain, or he just couldn't process quickly enough to get words out. So there was about a two or three week period before he died where he just couldn't talk, he didn't speak. And then in the last few days, of course, I visited him on the Saturday before um, he died, the day before he died, and he was sedated, so he wasn't even conscious in those moments. But it was around that period where Richard couldn't answer questions, he, we couldn't have a conversation, and it was, it was kind of depressing for me. I was desperate to hear his voice. And so I started going back looking through old emails and different message exchanges with him just to in some way to hear his voice in my head. And I found one that came from September of the year previous, almost a year to the date that he died. And the beginning of the email was just sort of the nuts and bolts of his treatment schedule. He was talking about, you know, he he had to they had to find some certain protein in his blood or something like that for him to qualify for a certain trial that he wanted to do. So it was just kind of an update on that. But this is how he ended the email. And it didn't really strike me then like it did a year later. 
But this is how he ended it. I really feel so blessed that God would actually use me at all to attempt to bring him the glory he so deserves. Why me, brother? Now, did you catch that? Why me, brother? Where most would say, why me, in the sense of, why would God pick on me? Why would God choose me to give cancer? Richard meant it the other way. Why would God choose me for such a privilege? See, Richard's viewpoint and Aaron's viewpoint, his wife, his widow, is this. If cancer could be used to glorify his Savior, he considered it a blessing. Now, of course, Richard dealt with bouts of anxiety and depression. He had low moments. That's normal. That's normal stuff happening to normal people going through that kind of pain. But what I have found encouraging is that this isn't something that he developed. I mean, it it developed in him. It got stronger in him. But it was something that he decided to have in the beginning of this journey or was committed to focusing on at the beginning of his journey. And I learned this the Sunday that he died. After church, I went out to um, his parents' home about an hour north of us in Bridport, Vermont. And I sat out on the porch with his dad. Richard's dad's name is Rick. And we sat there and we talked about Richard and we talked about the funeral and and, and plans that we were needing to make. And as we looked out over these rolling plains in Bridport, very green, it was a very windy and and, um, very gray day. His father said, you know, two years ago as we sat in the doctor's waiting room, and we hadn't really gotten the news yet, but we knew it was going to be bad. We knew they were getting ready to come tell us something really, really bad. And Rick said, that he said to Richard, no son should have to die before his father. And he said that Richard replied and said, no, Dad, this is a good thing because God can use this. I don't know how you get there except by the grace of God. See, he had been trained by grace to renounce an ungodly response to his suffering, to shake his fist, To say, why me? Why are you picking on me, God? To like Job, he never sinned against God. He didn't go into any unself-controlled rantings about what he deserved. Even laid low by cancer all the way to death, he walked through it upright. Grace trains us through suffering and affliction. Here's the fifth and final way that grace trains us. Grace trains us through the imparting of Christ himself. Through the imparting of Christ himself. This is important because when we think about grace, we think about some virtue, some ethereal thing. Grace. Much grace to you, brother. What does that mean? Like you're sending energy my way? What, what, What is that? Sometimes I would see, mostly from non-Christians, so I guess it's okay, but when someone is hurting on Facebook and you see all the well wishes, sending prayers and good vibes your way, like save the good vibes, and don't send prayers my way, I can do nothing with them, (laughs) send them his way. What is this, this grace needs to be fleshed out, and that's something that Paul's doing. If you... Remember the list of verses we looked through. He's giving us this robust picture of all the things that grace does. But now he's wanting us to identify what grace is. Because Christianity is a spiritual enterprise, it is a supernatural thing. 
what the gospel announces to us is that the God who has justified us is sanctifying us. And he has, by his own power, transformed us and is transforming us into the image of Christ. And so this grace that trains us is not some ethereal, magic, religious fairy dust. This virtue is embodied. The grace is Jesus. It is Jesus himself. It is Jesus who trains us. This is what Sinclair Ferguson says. It is legitimate to speak of, quote-unquote, receiving grace. And sometimes, although I am somewhat cautious about the possibility of misusing this language, we speak of the preaching of the word, prayer, baptism, and the Lord's Supper as a, quote-unquote, means of grace. That is fine, so long as we remember that there isn't a thing, a substance, or a quasi-substance called grace. All there is, is the person of the Lord Jesus, Christ clothed in the gospel, as John Calvin loved to put it. Grace is the grace of Jesus. If I can highlight the thought here, there is no thing that Jesus takes from himself and then, as it were, hands over to me. There is only Jesus himself. Grasping that thought can make a significant difference to a Christian's life. So while some might think this is just splitting hairs about a different way of saying the same thing, it can make a vital difference. It is not a thing that was crucified to give us a thing called grace. It was the person of the Lord Jesus that was crucified in order that he might give himself to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so the wonder for us Christians is this, is, is in receiving the gospel, we receive Christ. All of him, for all of us, not a bit of him is held back from us. And the picture that the New Testament gives of salvation is so much larger than just having the sins forgiven and a ticket to heaven. There is the dominant picture of what is called union with Christ. And so that he is in you and you are in him. You have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Even now, you're right here, but if you're in Christ, you're also up there already. You are hidden with Christ in God. You are abiding in him. You are united to him in a real way. Just because we say it's, a, it's spiritual doesn't mean it's less real. In fact, this, to, to say spiritual means it's more real. Thicker even. So you're united to him, you're conformed to his image, he is interceding for you, he is your eternal advocate, he covers you in his righteousness, and the more deeply we press into our identity in Christ, the more naturally, which is to say supernaturally, we will find it to repent well, control ourselves, and live godly lives. It's all of Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are too wonderful to for words to have done this for your children, for sinners, God. Father, help us to look at the cross of your Son, which is proof that you love sinners. As much in despair as we find ourselves about the way of the world and certainly about the way of ourselves, the, the sinful responses, the sinful behaviors, the sinful patterns, habits, help us to despair rightly of ourselves that we might look at your glory reflected in your Son. So we thank you for this gracious gift that you've given us. All of your Son for all of us for all eternity. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.